Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's show, we're going to continue our study through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 76 and the Lion of Judah. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that your word is true, and that it is not only true, but it's reliable. It's trustworthy. It's clear. It's binding. It's enough to address every situation and every circumstance of our hearts and of our lives. And Lord, as we even come today to this great psalm, we're going to be reminded, we're going to be instructed that you reign over all, that you are king of all, that you are Lord of all, and that all others are just pretenders. They are idols. And Lord, you are the creator. You are the one that we are to worship and reverence and stand and, and, and treasure uh, almost in our hearts because you are over all. You are in all. You are all things. And you hold all things together by the word of your power and for the glory of your great name. So Lord, as we come to now to this great psalm, Father, I pray that you would comfort our hearts if we're in the midst of trials, that you would counsel our hearts to prepare for those trials by reading and studying and meditating and taking in your word more and more into our hearts and into our lives. And Lord, I pray today that if there be areas that displease you and dishonor you, that you would use this word and that you would take it like Hebrews 4.12 says, and you would use it as a sword and that you would pierce into, as you do, Lord, through the preached word, pierce into the, into the marrow and the flesh of our lives and rip it all up into a thousand pieces, Lord, and bring conviction. Bring conviction where conviction is necessary. Bring comfort, Lord, through the gospel. Lord, we, we are in such great need of you today that I pray that as we consider this passage that you would encourage our hearts, that you would stir our affections afresh, and that you would bring great help and hope to, the, to, a, to a world right now that desperately needs it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 76, Psalm 76 says this In Judah God is known his name is great in Israel his abode has established in Salem his dwelling in Zion there he broke the flashing arrows the shield the sword and the weapons of war glorious are you more majestic than the mountains full of prey the stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil they sank into the deep all the men of war were unable to use their hands at your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you utter judgment, and the earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth, surely the wrath of man shall praise you, the remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. 
Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him uh, bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. May God bless the preaching of his word and the hearing of his word. Amen. Now, Psalm 76, it completes a progression that began in Psalm 74. That earlier psalm responded to the great distress of the people of God by first asking why God did not intervene and then by praying to him with confidence. And Psalm 75 picked up that same theme by praising God for the certainty that he will judge evil in due time. And now Psalm 76 looks back on a significant instance when God did just that. God heard, intervened, and destroyed the enemies of his people. And as a result, the psalmist desires both that God's own people would be faithful to him and that the surrounding peoples would realize that the God of Israel is the only true and living God. This psalm does not state, though, the occasion to which it addresses, um, the occasion which it has in mind for when God saved his people and destroyed their enemies. While we have some candidates, though, they include the great victory won over the Ammonite stronghold at Rabbah in 2 Samuel 12:27 or 12:26 in the time of David. An even more notable victory was God's destruction of the vast Ammonite coalition that swept on Judah in the time of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20:23. 20, and greater still was the slaying of the Assyrian army of 185,000 soldiers under King Sennacherib when the angel of the Lord struck them down in answer to Hezekiah's prayer in 2 Kings 19.35. The, this last example that I just mentioned is, is considered most likely, most plausible, the most plausible explanation by most commentators, since many of the details of Psalm 76 seem to fit that occasion. And since it celebrates God's delivering his people, Psalm 76 has often been remembered by Christians undergoing trials. Among many notable examples of this, the psalm was included in the Thanksgiving services when England marked what she considered God's direct intervention in destroying the Spanish Armada in 1588. The pilgrims who settled New England also looked to Psalm 76, taking the name of their main settlement, Salem, from verse 2 of this psalm which says his abode has been established in Salem. They understood the, the psalm's purpose as summarized by John Calvin, the continued care of God in defending the church, which he has chosen, is here celebrated to encourage the faithful without any doubt or any hesitation to glory in his protection. Well, let's consider our first point of this psalm, and it is this, that God is revealed himself specifically to his people in his word. And this, this point is drawn from the very first verse in our psalm, which says, In Judah God is known, his name is great in Israel. Now, this doesn't deny that other people outside of Israel were aware of God, since Scripture makes it clear in Romans 1.20 that all people learn of God in a general way through the creation that the Lord has made. But the only people who really know God in His grace, His saving grace, are the people who receive His Word and are gathered together around His Word. 
This situation is what makes the church the most vitally vital institution in the world. Christians alone, like Israel of old, knows who God is and what he has planned for the world. And the reason why God is fully known and only truly known, I should say, in the church as he was once in Judah is that God's ways can be only known as he chooses to reveal them as he has in his word. Now, God has revealed himself through his word, that is, through the prophets and the apostles whose writings make up the 66 books of the word of God. In ancient times, different civilizations had differing religions that consisted of the musings of their own imaginations. In general, they made and worshipped God in their own image, reflecting on their own values. The Israelites would have been no different if God had not chosen them in which to dwell and if God had not revealed himself to them. God chose them not for any merit in themselves because of sovereign grace by which he willed for this people to know him and to reveal himself to others. Not only the scriptures, but also the tabernacle, the temple, the priests, their atoning sacrifices for sin, their feasts, their institutions, all the life of Israel were all designed to reveal God and to lead people to saving faith in him. God said in Isaiah 49 verse 6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Today, the chief function of the church and its worship is to reveal God so that his glory may be fully known. And an excellent question to ask at your local church is this. What did you learn about God through its worship? Well, today we must say, sadly, many churches reveal far too little about God because their focus is on themselves or on the world or on the world's methods because they devote little time to the teaching of the Holy Word of God. A true church's glory is that God dwells there by His Spirit through His Word, just as Psalm 76 verse 2 celebrates, that God abode has been established in Salem, His dwelling place in Zion. Now, the proper response to God's grace is that He should be praised and that His glory should be made known. That is, the Word The word of God is to be central in the life of the church. All the other programs can can fade away. They're not unimportant, but the ministry of the word, the preached word of God is is to be primary in the local church. We we see this problem, by the way, even even in the Old Testament. The people had neglected the word. The, The priests had neglected their responsibility And what we see is in, for example, in Nehemiah 8 and Nehemiah 9 and Ezra 7, is that when the people hear the word of God, they hear the law of God from, you know, the first five books of the law, what do they do? They repent. Likewise, in the history of the church, when the the church has restored the word of God to the the word of God to the central place of the life of the local church, there what you see is renewal and reformation and and it's happening it's happening all over the world today where churches make not not that they don't care about pro problem programs or problems in their church but rather when they focus first on expositing dealing line by line verse by verse through the word of god what god does is he takes the faithful preaching of his word 
and he implants it into hearts and lives and he brings true conviction and help and hope and it it, it also helps the people of God to be equipped so that they can read the Bible themselves and rightly handle the word of God. And this is so, so important because this this. Uh, is uh, our worship is to be a response to the preached word of God. That is, the word of God goes outrightly divided, and our response to God is is to either repent if there is conviction of sin, or to be comforted and helped and equipped, or or maybe all of those things in the middle of the sermon. And our response to that is is to worship the lord that is also by by the way why our worship music must be sound it must be grounded in the in the rich teaching of the word of god and of the teaching of the church now we could say a lot about that but what is true of the church is also to be true of the christian individually not only are believers also all called <coughs> not only are all believers all called to tell others about the gospel of the grace of God, but our lives are indwelt by God's Spirit so that others can come to know the Lord by just seeing how we're doing. How are we living out this life of faith as we're reading and studying and meditating on the Word and fellowshipping with God's people? Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. And so the same question we, we should ask about a church should also be asked about ourselves. Do people who spend time with us learn anything about the grace and the truth of Christ revealed in the Word of God? If, if God is known by us, and if He indwells us by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, because we're united to Christ by faith in His name and indwelt by the Spirit, then it should be the case that others learn of the Lord through our lives. The Bible teaches that God's supreme revelation of himself was through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said this in John 10.30, when he said, I and the Father are one. And in John 14.9, John 14.9, he says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. These verses state not only that Jesus is like God, but more importantly, that God is like Christ. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And so the best way for a church or a Christian to reveal God, to glorify Him to the world, is to be centered on the person and work of the Lord Jesus. The one, the one who speaks often of Christ and whose heart relies most clearly on the gospel best knows God and makes His name great to others. Christ is so important to knowing God that the New Testament makes it clear that one cannot uh, know God and be saved by God through the gospel other than by hearing the word of God. In Acts 4.12, it says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And this is so important as well, just to reflect on for just a minute, because we're living in a time when, when all options on the, are on the religious table, if you will. Meaning that in, in our culture's eyes, uh, salvation is something that, you know what, you can find it in, in any sort of spirituality or religion or whatever, and don't, don't you tell me 
that there is only one way and that way is narrow and it's restricted. And yet this is what Jesus taught. It's what the apostles taught. It's what the church has taught throughout its history. There is salvation as Acts 4.12 says, and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is that the way is exclusive and the way is restricted only through repentance and faith in Christ alone can one possibly potentially be born again. And that message flies in the face of a culture that is individualistic. It, it is moralistic. It, it, it seeks after its own. It's, it's infatuated with the self. As we see, uh, thousands and millions, millions really, of selfies are taken in our country every day and then posted and uploaded to you know social media. And what does that say about our culture? It says that rather than taking a look at, at our own self, we think that we are the epitome of beauty and perfection and, and things just like the Greeks did. All you have to do is look at the Gr- Greeks and the Roman uh, art and, and sculpture and their celebration of the human body. And you wonder, isn't that what they thought of what salvation was? Look at the beauty and the detail that they put in. And this is what is so dangerous about the fact of, of what we theologians call, uh, uh, call the creator-creature distinction. That is, we are the creature and the Lord is the creator. Romans 1 highlights this, that, that God gave them over to debased minds. He gave them over to the, to the indulgence of the flesh. Why? Because they wanted to worship what was created rather than the creator, the one, the one who made us, the one who sustains us by the word of his power, the one who gives us life and breath, who knows our very hairs on our head and the thoughts that we think before we even think them. He knows the length of our days. And we're talking about the Lord God. This promise of salvation was first given in Genesis 3.15, and it's going to be culminated or, or its apex is going to be uh, reached in Revelation uh, not 20, you know, 20 and 21, when the Lord returns and he fully establishes kingdom. This is why, again, we use these ideas of the already and the not yet. We live, we live in between the times. The already was established at the time when Jesus said in John 19.30, it is finished. That is, his death signed and sealed and secured uh, the forgiveness of sins once and forever, as Hebrews so clearly talks about. And yet we live that the not yet is the, this is the time that we look forward to, uh, to when Christ will return. And so we live between the already and we not yet. And we, so we live in the now. And in the now, there's trials, there's tribulations, there's there's difficulty, there's challenges. And just because, you know, we're, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the Christian is not promised a bed of roses. Uh, Jesus in John 16, 33, in that upper room discourse running from John 13 to John 17, he very clearly says in John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation. And this is why Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 to discipline yourself for the sake of God. Why? Because we need the grace of God. 
We have been saved by God and, and for God and by the grace of God. We've been indwelt by the Spirit of God. It is this grace in which Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, in which we stand. And so we need to stand. We need to stand on the Word of God. Well, our second point here is God is known in power and wrath. And this psalm does not merely celebrate God's presence among his people so that they can know and reveal him in a general way. The particular point is, is that God's people know him through his mighty works to overthrow their enemies and deliver them from distress. Verse 3 brings to the fore the idea of God as a mighty deliverer when it says, There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. In our study of Psalms, we do not normally uh, take much notice of the word Selah, which appears at the end of Psalm 76, verse 3. This word was likely a musical notation, and though it gives clues to the structure of a psalm, it is not often clear why it appears where it does. Psalm 76 is an exception to this because the Selah seems to clearly indicate that we should reflect and meditate on God having overthrown the enemy by breaking his arrows, the shield, and the sword. And not only is God known in Jerusalem, but especially revealed himself by overthrowing Israel's enemies in a supernatural way. Now, we talked about a, that there are a number of potential candidates for the historical background to this psalm. But the destruction of the Assyrian army under Sennacherib in 701 BC is at least a good example of what this psalm is talking about for us. And that particular episode is considered uh, most likely not only because of its prominence in the Old Testament, but also because of its many details in this psalm. The defeat of Sennacherib is also important uh, that its full story is recounted three different times in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings 18-19, in 2 Chronicles 32, and Isaiah 36-37. Now the story begins in Isaiah 7, when the foolish king Ahaz invited the mighty Assyrian Empire to come and to intervene in Palestine so as to defend Jerusalem from its threatening neighbors. Ahaz failed to heed God's warning not to enter into the idolatry necessary to this treaty, and he failed to realize that when the northern conquerors come, they would not want to leave. And so when Ahaz's godly son Hezekiah came to the throne, he therefore had to throw off the yoke of the Assyrian domination, the result of which was a massive invasion of the mighty Assyrian army. 2 Kings 18, it tells us how the Assyrians overran all the strongholds of Judah and came to besiege Jerusalem. The king's Herod, known as Rabakah, came forward to mock Hezekiah's faith in God, assuring him and his people that if they did not surrender, their city would be destroyed and their God would be carted off in disgrace. And following the advice of the prophet Isaiah, Hezekiah went into the temple on Mount Zion and threw himself before the Lord in prayer. He said in 2 Kings 19, 19, O Lord our God, save us please from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And in response to Hezekiah's prayer, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians in 2 Kings 19, 35, thus eradicating the threat to God's people and the affront to God's name. Now, a number of details cited in verses 3 through 7 of, of Psalm 76 appear to correspond to God's miraculous intervention in the days of Hezekiah. 
Verse 5 notes that the stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. This well describes what happened when the angel of the Lord slew the sleeping army of Assyria. 2 Kings 19.35 relates that when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. The equipment of the enemy was easily lifted from their lifeless hands to become the spoil of God's people. In fact, God's conquest took place by the mere word of his command, as Psalm 76.6 celebrates. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. Verse 7 summarizes, But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? Benjamin B. Warfield writes, When God enters the field, all the machinery of conflict stops. The lightning-like arrows which fly from the bow cease in their courses. The shield and the sword fall helpless to the ground. The stout-hearted with their chariots and horses drop into the inactivity of death. For Jehovah is terrible. None can stand before him when his wrath begins to burn but a little. Now Psalm 76.4 employs striking imagery to describe the fierce power of God in destroying all of his enemies when he says, Glorious are you more majestic than the mountains full of prey. Mountains symbolize kingdoms, and mountains full of prey stand for earthly powers that use violence to destroy. The point is, is that God is even more deadly than these contemporary threats, just as he was able to slay the entire army of the Assyrians. This statement, it corresponds to the words used in verse 2, for God's abode and dwelling place, which we can, can be translated, lair and den. And thus God is seen as a lion of Judah, which who prowls around to destroy any who dare threaten his territory. The Assyrians who approached Jerusalem thought they were facing a weak and a poorly fortified city, but they had in fact stepped into a lair where the majestic God defended his people. And the same danger is present at all times for those who would arrogantly assail the church. Charles Spurgeon writes, In the spiritual conflicts of this and every age, the like will be seen that no weapon that is formed against the church shall prosper, and every tongue that rises against her in judgment she shall condemn. And whoever, uh, moreover, while the glory of the earthly disposits may shine for a season, God is still truly the radiant champion. The word translates as glorious in Psalm 76.4. It means shining. William Plummer notes, Their glory fills a little part of this world. He, his fills heaven and earth. Their glory is fleeting. His is eternal. C.S. Lewis captured this idea of combining untamed power and radiant glory in his Narnia children's fantasy when he endure, in, introduced his Christ-like figure Aslan as a huge and shaggy and bright. Martin Luther speaks of Israel's savior in a way that, that could be spoken of Lewis's Aslan when he says, The almighty warrior is our captain. He holds in his hand the hearts and the spirits of our enemies. Without arms or weapons of men, he can lay our adversaries prostrate in a moment. You see, God's overwhelming power was likewise the subject of Moses' song after God's parting of the Red Sea to permit Israel to escape, after which he drowned the chariots of Pharaoh in the waves. In Exodus 15, 2-3, it says this, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. 
Now, several statements in this depiction of the victory of God are of particular importance to Christians today. And the first is in Psalm 76, 6, which says that it was at God's rebuke that the enemy chariots were overthrown. Now, notice that God achieves his victory by speaking his word. A similar emphasis is also given in Luke 4, where Jesus casts out a demon and cures Peter's mother-in-law, in both cases doing so by rebuking that which was evil in Luke 4.35 and Luke 4.39. God's word has power to overthrow ungodly powers in this world, and therefore Christians must wage war primarily with the word of God. This is all the more true when the church suffers outward persecution and intense affliction. Revelation 12.11 summarizes the triumph of believers in their spiritual warfare with Satan when he says, They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Paul made this same point emphatically, focusing the warfare of Christians not on earthly weaponry, but on the mighty power of the truth of God revealed in the word, as 2 Corinthians 10.3-5 says. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. In fact, Psalm 76 verse 2 states that God's abode was established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. The term dwelling place naturally calls to mind the temple where the glory of God resided. Verse 3 says, Then there he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. The point is, is that God's victory took place not so much on the battlefield as in the temple, the place of prayer where his people meet with him. Hezekiah came to the temple and prayed to the Lord. It was there, in effect, that the enemy arrows, shields, and swords were smashed. And in this instance, as on virtually every other occasion, when God revealed his saving might and protecting his people, the victory resulted from the prayers of God's people as God heard and acted in reply. Psalm 76 thus teaches that prayer, combined with the ministry of God's word, gives victory to the cause of Christ in the world. Now let's consider lessons that we can learn from the knowledge of God. The psalmist wants God's name to be praised by his people, for the great deliverance the Lord has achieved. But he also wants the people to learn some vital lessons as they come to know God through the saving power that he has worked on their behalf. And to this end, he notes three precepts in Psalm 76, 7 through 10. First, since God is so radiant in glory and power, he should be feared by all people. In verse 7, he says, but you, you are to be feared. The God of the Bible, the God who so often revealed his glory and saving his people should be treated with reverence and respect. To fear the Lord means to hold him in proper regard as a Lord and judge who determines the fate of men. The psalmist wrote this in Psalm 76, 7 through 8. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you utter judgment, the earth feared and was still. And since God is the almighty judge, only a fool treats him lightly. The wise man or woman responds to the knowledge of God not only in love for his kindness and joy, but also for his grace, but also in reverent fear because of his greatness. And when the psalmist writes, you, you are to be feared in verse 7, this carries the idea that only God is to be feared. And so the fear of the Lord teaches us not to be afraid of men or the powers of the world, because Paul reasoned in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? See, Spurgeon said this, 
The fear of man is a snare, but the fear of God is a great virtue and has great power for good over the human mind. The second lesson follows from the first, namely that we should trust the Lord to be our Savior and King. Verse 9 of this psalm points out that God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. You see, just as God is roused to anger by the evil and the pride of rebellious mankind, He is also moved with mercy towards those who humbly rely on His grace. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 5-6, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Mary sang of the saving grace of God in her song that celebrates the birth of Christ in Luke 1, 52-55, which says, God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped the servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. You see, God is not only just to condemn all evil, he's also, fi- he's also faithful to save those who call on the name of the Lord. This being the case, Paul says this in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the final lesson given in Psalm 76, 10, which warns against the futility of all opposition to God, says this, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. This famous statement makes the point that even the worst that man can do in opposition to God is made an occasion for the display of his glory. Christians can therefore know that the most violent and spiteful acts against them are governed by the sovereign will of God and are ordered by his almighty power to achieve precisely the purpose in which the Lord intends. Warfield writes that though Satan may rage about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, yet he has a bite in his mouth, and it is God who holds the reins. Now this is taught this doctrine is taught in Romans eight twenty eight, where Paul asserts that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There are indeed many evil things in our world that we all know, and we also need to say Christians truly do suffer. But God overrules the worst that men can do, so as to promote his own glory and the ultimate good of those who trust in him. In the end, it is his wrath that prevails, and not the wrath of man in opposition to his rule. Psalm 76.10 states that the remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. When a man has done his worst and spent his wrath against God, God then takes up his own wrath like a garment and wields it in power. J.J. Stewart Perrone writes, All the wrath of men, every attempt that they make to defeat the will of God, does but turn to their own discomforture and his glory. After all their efforts, he has a store, a residue of wrath to pour out upon them as punishment. And when Christ returns and his judgment seat is set in place, rebels against God will have no place to escape his just condemnation. Revelation 6, 15-17 records the terror of the ungodly in the day of Christ's return. It says, They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? In fact, if ever there was an occasion when Psalm 76.10 was fulfilled, when the wrath of man brought praise to God, that was the day when Jesus, God's Son, died for our sins on the cross in our place. 
How mankind raged under the banner of Satan as Jesus was rejected by the crowds, scourged and mocked by the soldiers, nailed to the cross, reviled by the religious leaders, and left to die under the hot Judean sun. How complete was the apparent triumph of man's wrath against God on that day. And yet it was God who gained the victory in his gospel that received the glory and still does today. After all, the, the Apostle Peter explained how futile this opposition to God can be since the death of Christ achieved God's glorious plan to save sinners who believe in Acts 2, 23-24, which says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now let's let's look lastly at how we should respond to God in light of what we've discovered and learned today from Psalm 76. And this psalm it gives us two very pointed applications. The first is directed at believers in verse 11, which says, "Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them." In other words, the more that we come to know God as He's revealed in His Word Himself to us in His Word. And to realize that all that he does in saving his people, the more motivated we should be to offer our lives to his praise. For this great salvation, we owe him our allegiance, we owe him our love. This principle is summed up by the first of the Ten Commandments given by God after his great victory in delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt. When when Moses says in Exodus 22-3, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Spurgeon writes, He keeps his promises. Let not his people fail in theirs. He is their faithful God and deserves to have a faithful people. Now, the second application is directed to those who are outside of the people of God, summoning them to come and give their homage to the Lord in verse 11. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Are you able to say that the God of Psalm 76 is your God? Do you look to the cross of Christ and know that your sins are forgiven there? Do you face the prospect of death without fear because your Savior reigns both in life and beyond the grave? If not, then come to know God by taking up his revealed word in the word of God. Become aware not only of his power and of his justice, but also of his mercy and grace. Consider the Lord Jesus, the mighty Lion of Judah, and also the tender Lamb of Calvary's cross. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The psalm ends with words that make it imperative that you come to go, God, not not some other time, but right now in this moment. Since he is to be feared who cuts off the, the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth, as he says in Psalm 76, 11 through 12. These words echo the conclusion of Psalm 2, which calls you to bow in faith and obedience to God's Son Jesus, who established by his Father, who was established by his Father to rule over heaven and earth for life and eternity. Psalm 2, 10 through 12 says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in the Lord. You see, this is the word of God that we have heard today. As the psalmist says, you're either going to bow before the Lord in obedience to him because he is king over all, or you're going to perish. That's the truth. For the, for the non-Christian, there's only one way to God, 
It's not through idols. It's not through your job. It's not through your workplace. It's, it's not through anything that you can see or touch or taste. It is through the Prince of Peace and the Lord of Lords, the King of Righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You see, there is forgiveness in no other name other than in Christ alone. And that is actually the best news in the world. Because we see what, what happens when we seek pleasure and meaning and value and work. You know, there, there's a man in the Bible. He was given great wisdom, and yet he didn't exercise it to its fullest extent. Because if he had, Solomon would have come to know the Lord in saving faith. He would not have had hundreds and hundreds of concubines and wives and, and pursued the, the, the flesh and the world and the devil. Instead, he would have pursued the Lord. He would have dedicated his mind and his heart to the wisdom of God revealed in the word. Now, I'm not saying that Solomon did, didn't do any good, but I'm saying he didn't take his own counsel. He didn't apply the gift of wisdom that he had been given. And yet Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that the wisdom of God that, that was given to Solomon is personified in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the greater Solomon in every way. Solomon was a finite, a fallen uh, human being, and yet the Lord Jesus is perfectly sinless. And this, he, was, he never sinned. He was perfect in all of his ways. And this is why he can be our once and for all substitute to give us the forgiveness of sins. He is the priest that we have been looking for. He is the prophet who tells us the truth. He is the king over all the, all the kings. Every, every king will bow ultimately and every person will bow before the lordship of God. And this is the best news in the world because as even Solomon writes, in Ecclesiastes 3, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. This is a God who, in that same chapter in Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon writes that God has set eternity on our hearts. You see, the God who made you, the God who fashioned you, the God who upholds this world, the God who knows the hairs on your head, he knows the length of your days, he knows the thoughts that you think before you think them. He knows you. He gets you. He knows the state of your heart today. And maybe today, as Hebrews 4.12 says, that that sword is piercing, the sword of the word of the Lord is piercing your heart. And you are, you are left bare before the knowledge that you cannot make yourself right before God. And that is the truth. That is God in his kindness is allowing you in this moment, at this time, to come to know him. And if that's the case, then I plead with you on the basis of Acts 16.31 to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And as we wrap up, I want to say one more thing to Christians. We are living in this time of great unrest, and it, and it seems that things are going south very quickly. And what a, what a psalm like this, Psalm 76, does is it reminds us that our God is unchanging. But he's also near to us. He's, he's not only uh, unchanging in all of his ways, but he draws near in the midst of our trials and difficulties. Some, maybe some of you today feel that God is far off 
and that he's not interested in my concerns and my trials and my suffering. And it's understandable that you feel that way in the midst of financial difficulty and personal suffering and trials. But the scriptures over and over again remind us in Hebrews 13, 5 and 9 and Psalm 37, 4, they remind us that God is unchanging and that God is near, that God cares in the midst. This is why First Peter was written, Hebrews was written, other books of the Bible were written to comfort, to show Christians the people of God facing intense suffering, that the Lord cares, that the Lord knows, that the Lord is interested. And this is why Paul can say that we're to cast our cares on the Lord, for he cares for us. This is why we're to think on what is noble and good and pure and lovely in the word of God, as we see in Philippians 4. God is good. You know, it may not seem like it today, but God's character remains the same. Titus 1-2 says that God can never lie. Hebrews 6 says that God will always act in accordance with his character because he is bound to his, his he, God has bound himself to act in accordance with his revealed word. For God to act or to do contrary to his revealed will in his word would make God a liar and that would make God a sinner. And God has never sinned. He is not the author of sin. See, this is why we need the truth. We need the truth of God's word to confront us where we're at. We need comfort. We need help. We need to be reminded. We need to be instructed. We need one another. And there is no better place for that to happen than in our local churches. These, these resources here at Servants of Grace are a great supplement to help you to grow but my plea for you is that you would get in a local church where the word of God is valued, where it's prized. And if, and if these resources, you still utilize them after that, praise God. You know, praise the Lord if they're a blessing to you, which I pray that they are. But here's the thing. We need the Lord. We need his grace. We need his help. And that, for the Christian, is not just one moment where we walk through the door and we're saved. That's ongoing. That's for the rest of our lives until we until our faith becomes sight and we see the Lord Jesus face to face. So Christian, cling to these precious promises like I do in times when it seems like, you know what? Things are just running along and they're going so fast and it, life hurts and struggles. Cling to the unchanging nature of your God. Cling to the nearness of your God and trust the promises of God because 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true, that you are our hope, that you are our shield, that you are a fortress, that, that you help us in our great time of need and in our times where we have much. Thank you, Lord, that you meet us where we are, that you have come and you invaded our time and our space in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we're reminded, we're thankful. Help us to now live and walk in obedience to the word in which we have heard. And may it be rooted and planted deep in our heart. And may you use these mere efforts to explain this psalm, to bring many to faith, to, to comfort your people who are called by your name. And may you now, as, as we're done, as we're concluding, 
Send us out as you do on mission for the glory of God and for the good of our world. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.